Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. To remind you of that account, I will read verse 35. Jesus sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he will be the last of all and the servant of all. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me ask you a series of questions and ask you which one gave the most glory to God or was the most glorious. A faithful pastor normally stands in front of his pulpit and preaches to his congregation flawless, very well worked out sermons. This week was different. He's the pastor in a large church of a small town and a flu epidemic has hit the community. And he started out with busy things in the week and didn't have a chance to to go over his sermon text the way he would like to. And then with that influenza, he started having to make hospital calls. In the last three nights in a row, he was up all night with a member in the hospital who was dying and did receive eternal glory. Three different members. And then on Saturday, when he finally had the chance to sit down, somebody came in for counseling. And Saturday night... He started to come down with the flu. Heavily drugged and medicated on Sunday morning, he pulls out a sermon he wrote 12 years earlier from his vicar year and reads the sermon to his congregation and survives the liturgy. Or that same congregation normally has a wonderful organist who was trained as a concert pianist and normally does a fantastic job. And, and normally she plays as that glo- and the congregation sings along very well. But this Sunday she has the flu. And they're going to have to sing a cappella, and pastor's miserable. And one of the members raises their hand and says, Pastor, I can play the melody with one hand, and we'll get through the hymns. And so she plays. It's not the concert pianist, but the congregation sings. Or, earlier on that week, the sewer for that church backed up, and one of the members, a layman, waded ankle deep through raw sewage, and got the sewer all cleaned up so the church could worship in a sanitary location. Which was the most glorious? Which brought the most glory to God? We can get confused because we look through it through worldly eyes. And that's what's going on in today's text. And so we will see today true glory in God's kingdom is serving. Now, once again, we're told in verses uh, 30 through 32 that Jesus is teaching him about the cross. We're told they went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know this because he was teaching his disciples. He told them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. But three days after he is killed, he will rise. But they did not understand the statement and were afraid to ask him about it. This came up last week in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus tells them, uh, I'm going to Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin's going to plot my death and I'm going to end up on the cross and die. And recall Peter chews him out for it. You've heard me say from this pulpit before, we always have to pay attention in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in to the verb tense and also to the prepositions because we often don't uh, translate them as clear or miss it in English. So the verb tense in verse 31 is the imperfect, which means he was teaching his disciples as in he was teaching this over and over again. He's sticking with this, I'm going to die. And he uses a title for himself, the Son of Man. 
Now God, the pre-incarnate Christ, when he talks to men like the prophet Ezekiel, he calls him son of man, emphasizing that Ezekiel's just a man, but he's being given a, a divine message. But Jesus, a man, refers to himself as the son of man. That must mean he's more than a man, and that's because he is. He is true God who became a man, and he became a man for a reason. You see, God sees us in our sin, and you're all a fool if you think that you can go 10 minutes without even thinking something that offends God's holiness. So there we are stuck in our sin, and God took on human flesh. He chooses to be knit in the womb of a virgin who is a sinner. And if Mary was not a sinner, she would not have rejoiced that her Savior had been born. She would not need a Savior if she was not a sinner. Now, think about this. God, who is perfectly holy all the time, chooses to restrain his godhood so that he can be for nine months through an umbilical cord, through ambionic fluid, be connected to and in that virgin's womb. And he takes on human flesh so that he who is perfectly righteous can live righteous for you and I in our place. So to give a rather disgusting analogy, but really nails it down, it's like there is a swimming pool full of manure. And that manure is our sin. And God becomes a man. By doing so, he dives into the deep end of the pool, down to the bottom, and pulls the plug out to drain out all that manure that is our sin. That is not glorious in the world's eyes. That is not the kind of God that this world wants. But he doesn't just take on our human flesh so he can credit us with his righteousness. He's a way he's got to drain that pool. He's got to remove the manure of our sin. And how he's going to do that is what he keeps teaching his disciples and they keep missing. He keeps saying the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. But after three days that he's killed, he will rise. Brothers and sisters in Christ, he didn't just dive into the manure pool and pull the plug. He pulled the plug by not only taking on our human flesh, he took your sins and put them on his back and then put his back against the cross, which is the New Testament altar through which the God-man offered his life to remove your sin. And he credited you with his life of perfect obedience. That is service. That is the service that gives God glory. See, God's glory is his grace. It's not the world's glory, which would be sitting on a throne as he does when he returns in judgment and everybody sees the, the day of wrath and now it's the time of reckoning. His glory is in his grace that he offers and removes your sin. So that if you end up in hell, it's only because you said, no thanks, I don't want it. I want a God that's different. I don't want somebody who's willing to swim in a manure pool to remove my sin. And there's something he adds to his teaching to the disciples that he didn't have before. Did you catch that? Again, we can miss it. It's passive. He's going to be betrayed. Now, we know in less than a year's time, he's going to reveal who that betrayer is as he tells Judas on Monday, Thursday, what you are about to do, do quickly. God has come to serve and he knows Judas is going to betray him. But I told you, his glory is his grace and his grace is his willingness to serve us with what we need. And in his grace, he's willing to serve Judas by letting Judas be a disciple so that Judas can hear over and over again that God loves him and is his savior. 
It makes Judas's betrayal all the more disgusting. It makes us realize all the more he did this in spite of everything God offered him. But we're told with the other disciples as well, but they didn't understand this and were afraid to ask him about it. Why were they afraid to ask him? We've seen so far true glory in God's kingdom is serving and the Savior serves by bearing our sins. He put on our manure on his shoulders and gave you his clean suit of righteousness. That should motivate us to serve. But the disciples, they're afraid to ask, why is this? One of the events that happens between last week's sermon text and this week's sermon text is he's gone up to the mountain of transfiguration. Ah, and he only took three disciples with him on top of that mountain, Peter, James, and John. The same three who had got to see him raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. The house was too small for everybody to cram into her room. So they're going to start arguing over who's the greatest. But now, all of a sudden, Peter, last week's text, when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, Peter chews him out and says, oh, stop talking this way. And Jesus rebukes him and says, you uh, get thee behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man, the things of this world. So what they know is, is Jesus is sticking with this, I'm going to be killed. And you and I know that it's actually as God, he could have come off that cross. He gave his own life voluntarily. So now they're afraid because they don't want to be chewed out. That's selfishness. I don't want to look dumb in front of everybody else when it comes to godly matters. Imagine if one of them had had the backbone to say, Lord, what are you talking about? The comfort they would have had when the crowd came to arrest Jesus. The comfort they would have had when he dies on the cross. They could have said, three days from now, Sunday, he's going to be, he's going to be up and going again. Instead, they couldn't believe it when they heard Sunday morning Jesus had risen again. They were too afraid to ask. Now, I'm not saying this to condemn them because I've been too afraid to ask brothers and sisters in Christ. I've been too afraid to come to Bible study because I don't want people to know how ignorant I am. And guess what? The only way I'm going to stop being ignorant is if I come to Bible study. I've been too afraid to open up my mouth in Bible study because I'm afraid that I'm going to look stupid. But, you know, I've also found that when I have asked those questions, then I get them answered. And then I'm not so stupid. And I've also found then other people say, you know, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I was wondering the same thing and I, I didn't ask. Thank you for asking. Or others said, I hadn't thought about it before. But when you asked the question, then I was like, yes, what's the answer? Part of selflessness in God's kingdom is willing to recognize it's not about me. It's willing to understand, I need to come to Bible study so, and I need to be in the Word. And I know I'm preaching the choir because you're listening to the sermon this morning. So that I'm empowered to serve my neighbor and tell them, there's where the guy who swims into the pool and removes the manure is. That's where you find your sin removed. That right here in the God man is where salvation is found. And they have these questions. And the more that we are willing to serve them, it's not just ourselves by being and studying the word, the more equipped we are. See, we serve the body that Jesus won because we're part of that body. So back to those disciples who were afraid to ask. Again, they've come off that Mount of Transfiguration. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they remained silent because on the way they'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, the inspired Greek actually says who was greater. So in English, we say the greatest. They all knew that they were the 12. 
They were the twelve disciples. But which of that, that's not good enough, which of the twelve is greater? Who's going to sit at the right hand of Jesus in his kingdom? And recall, they think the kingdom is a worldly political kingdom. Your right hand man tends to be your general. Who's going to be your left hand man? That's your advisor. And who's going to be the sanitation expert? Because I don't want to be the sanitation expert. Jesus says, you're thinking about it all wrong. You're in my kingdom. I served you. How does he tell them that? Jesus sat down, called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he will be last of all and servant of all. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, our sinful minds read this. And, and you know, I like to have my ego pat too. Let's not kid ourselves. But if we, we read this and we turn around and we think, okay, if I want to have a good position in God's kingdom of eternal glory, then I better start acting like a servant here. And that's the wrong motivation. In fact, I, I laugh about this. The, the one who's supposed to be the head of the largest church of Christianity, when he became the head after the previous guy had, had retired, he makes a big media deal. And he had some prisoners. Some of them were Muslim. Muslims who hate Christians. And he went and washed their feet to show he could be just as humble as the Savior was. With all the media cameras and everything else. Guess what, brothers and sisters in Christ? That's not being last of all. That's patting your ego. It's, it's taking what looks biblical and making it seem like you're humble. No, the best example I can think of this, and there's many, but one of the good ones is John the Baptist. John the Baptist had no choice in being born the forerunner of the Lord. That was God's choice. John the Baptist was a sinner like you and I. But what kind of life could he have? He was the son of a priest and he could have served in the temple and he would have gotten his portion of the meat that was offered for sacrifice, his portion of the bread. And maybe the people would have praised him because when it was his turn to go out to the cities and, and, and teach the, uh, the, the, the Torah and explain it to him, maybe he would have been more gifted than the rest. But God had already won him, had made him his own, and he submitted to the Lord's will. So he lived a diet on locusts. That's not good food in my book. The clothes on his back, they weren't the pretty clothes you empower me to buy. A suit to stand in front of you. Oh, no. <laughs> Take a dead camel and skin it. That's my clothes. But why was he willing to do that? Because he had the privilege, not that he deserved it, of saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's what it was about for him. And the thanks he gets for it is not glorious in this world's eyes. King Herod inflamed with lust for his own niece. Ew, that's disgusting. Beheads John the Baptist. Not glory in the world's eyes, but John the Baptist got glory in God's eyes. He got to tell people. Your good works don't save you. The Lamb of God does, and He has come, and there He is. What has motivated you to come and hear the Word of God? Certainly, I'm selfish. It's once again to be reminded, my sins are forgiven, and that's really not that selfish. But God also uses that so He can send you out and tell others, what is the greatest service? Well, Jesus cuts to the chase. Then he took a, a little child and placed him in their midst. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not just me, but also him who sent me. Why a child? Now, today we recognize that the children are our future, as the song says. But really, there's no monetary gain in children. There's no glory. A children gives you a hug, and that's sweet, and that's it. But to welcome a child, to be willing to sit down, and how does he say welcome? How does he resave them? I said earlier in the sermon, we've got to pay attention to the Greek prepositions. It's literally in the Greek preposition is upon 
my name. Now, Jesus' name, as all the names of God, tell us what Jesus does for you. The name Jesus from Hebrew Yahshua means Savior. Christ, as we learned last week, means the one anointed to save you. All those names for God tell you of his grace and what he does for you. So welcoming, receiving a child on the basis of Jesus' name is no different than building that child's spiritual house on the rock that is Christ. It means baptizing them in Jesus' name. So they have property of God, Lamb of God written all over them. It means bringing them up knowing that, yes, they are in a terrible spiritual condition apart from God, but they are Jesus' little lamb. And Jesus is their Savior. And what reward do we get it? Does it make us millions? No. Does it give us worldly glory? No. But that child is going to heaven. This applies also to our neighbor. Sometimes it's not so glorious to take the time to help the neighbor who would never help you in hopes of just opening up the door to tell them, by the way, you have a Savior that you desperately need. And there might not be worldly glory in that. I remember the day at my job when I was studying to be at the seminary, giving a man a ride home. I liked the guy. It was at a car dealership and we'd repaired his car. I was actually giving him a ride, not home, but back to the dealership to pick up his car. And he said, I like you. You're a smart young man. What are you, what are you studying to be? I know you're here a student. I said, a pastor. He said, there's no money in that. That's worldly glory's money. But I get this privilege of serving you and getting to share with you the word of God and getting to be with you in your struggles and your good times. Why? Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of the glory of God. So I asked you at the beginning, which ones gave the most glory to God? And the answer is, they all did. When that pastor normally was on the money with his sermons, he was giving glory to God. But because he had been serving the Lord and, and that Sunday and ended up having to, write, having to just read a sermon he wrote 12 years earlier, he still gave glory to the Lord because he'd been serving the Lord. That woman whom the Lord had blessed and had practiced for years and was a concert pianist, she gave glory to the Lord by being willing to play that organ. But the one that Sunday that she was sick that, that spoke up and played with, with one hand through the melody, she also brought glory to the Lord. Lord. And the man who weighed ankle deep in the sewer, that didn't seem like glory, did it? But he made it so his brothers and sisters in Christ could worship the Lord without uh, worrying about illness from unsanitary conditions. In God's eyes, it's all done out of thanks and praise for him who served us by swimming down into that manure pile of our sin and pulling the plug off so he could make us his own lambs. True glory in God's kingdom is serving. The Savior serves by bearing our sins and then because he's won us, we serve the body he won to his glory according to what he considers grace. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and in his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. Amen.